Hello everyone, Sucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back. This is a little bit of an extra special episode that we have going for you here today because, well, this is, I think, the first full week that Gabby is really helping me with just about everything. From the general content production for short videos to the long form videos with scripts, with all the varying things that we have, notes. Hell, the first half of this podcast, she was doing a lot of the research for. And I am incredibly grateful to her. And I'm incredibly grateful to all of you who have supported us, whether it be on Patreon, whether it be on YouTube, whether it be on any of these things. I appreciate all of you who have been here with us because it is only thanks to you that she is able to do it. And it is only thanks to her that we were able to get as much today accomplished as we did. So to all of you, leaving you, Gabby. Thank you. <laughs> you all are my favorite hoes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. So without further ado, I think it's time that we get into today's episode. So Gabby, tell, tell us, tell, tell everyone, what, what are we doing? What are we doing today? The Marian reforms of the Roman army. So basically the easiest types of episodes for me to research are those that go over one specific event or like a person mm -hmm. because I am not good at history. I, it's not that. It's just I'm not confident enough in my historical knowledge to do more complex topics, if that makes sense. I get really overwhelmed. Something that would require giving an argument, basically, where you're trying to explain something versus just covering the story of what happened. Yeah, like really broad topics overwhelm me because where do I start? Yeah. Like, you know... um. When I, I was writing a Gladius episode and basically I needed to know the current political climate and social climate in order to give a justification on like the yeah. argument that I was making. And I just did not know any of it because how would I know, you know, that's yeah. a very, really niche thing for someone to know. So episodes like this are easier for me to write. No, it makes sense. And there's a lot more of the ones that in their future that she is going to be covering with us. So I really do appreciate it. Gabby, do you want to, since, especially since you did the beginning of this, do you kind of want to explain the premise of what we're going to be working with and the Marian reforms and the, the setting for the Roman Empire and how this all kind of begins? You can explain. Like, you want the me setup. to explain it? Yeah. Okay. okay. People are here for your beautiful voice. Oh, are they now? Well, I'm I here for your beautiful so. face. My voice while staring at your face is just ever so nice. I think I'm getting a little bit off topic in here, but I'm distracted because you're pretty. Please record the episode. <laughs> okay, fine. So we're going to be getting into this. For anyone who is a little bit confused about what we're talking about, we're the Marian reforms are the things that standardized the Roman army. When you think of Rome, you're thinking of this highly militarized society, the professional army, the thing that conquered effectively the known world in Europe, right? Over 2,000 years ago. But prior to the imperial era, Rome had actually done most of its expansion prior to being a mil not military. What am I saying? Because, of course, they had the military. It had done, done most of its expansion prior to being a imperial system. It was a republican system. And during the republican system, it experienced this transition from the old manipular style legion to the new cohort system as it was defined under Marius. And that's what we're going to be explaining. How the Roman Empire, before it became the empire, modernized its army. And also from that, how even though this is something that professionalized it and made it great, this was also perhaps the greatest key to its destruction. And that is something that I'm going to be getting into here today. So for anyone confused about this, when we're talking about the early manipular Roman legion, this is something that was used from the early 4th century BC all the way until the Marian reforms in 107 BC. Two to 300 years worth, this is the style of unit that it had. It was the largest and most basic unit of the army's composition. The early Roman army was made up of citizens that were able to serve. And in order to serve a Roman citizen, had to be capable of affording the weapons and armor that were required for battle. This was not supplied by the state. I thought that was really funny because you had to be able to afford, like you had to own land. They actually had yes. land requirements and how many animals you had to own in order to serve. Correct. Which meant that the poorer people were not making any money. So basically the rich were getting richer and the poor were remaining pretty poor because the way the soldiers gathered yes, wealth is exactly. by conquering. So I thought that was really, really interesting because, you know, they whatever they fought, whatever spoils of war, they'd split it up. And that's how they essentially got paid because it wasn't like a salary. It was like, oh, 
we got all of this gold here. Let's split it amongst ourselves. Yep. And so, you know what was one of the most valuable things that you could get at the time? Animals? Slaves. Oh, dear. Yes. You would want to get that. And the reason being is, especially in the early days, though, I could do an entire video on Roman slavery, how slavery was at this time in the early days of the Republic and like in, in ancient times before things developed into the actual imperial era is a very different experience. Like slavery in the beginning is way less brutal than what it became later. It was still something that could be quite brutal, but not nearly as bad as what it became later on. But either way, this is an agricultural society. The majority of people are small farmers. So the more slaves that you had, the more you were able to produce because that was basically free labor that you only had to provide food for. And yet it was working the land to be able to provide crops that you'd be able to sell and in turn get more wealth. So that that it was something that fed into itself. So, yeah, that was a really big thing when you went and conquered things that I think approximately it was a pretty steady number. About 20 percent of the population in Rome were slaves. Uh, they could do better. Remember Sparta? Well, yeah, where it was about 85 percent of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Something ridiculous. <laughs> what was the, the statistic? It was either six to one or seven to one. I think the helots outnumber them. It was a lot. It was a lot. You are right. It was absolutely a lot. So, yes, the early Roman army was made up of citizens. And, and in order to serve, you had to be able to afford all of your equipment. And as you said, that meant that the poorer people simply could not fight because they couldn't afford any of the weapons or armor that would qualify them to serving their city, which means that they can't earn prestige. They can't earn wealth. They can't earn all the stuff from war that would progress them through society. Because Rome was a very martial society. You measured your worth in terms of politics and military conquests. Like military was a huge aspect to your prestige within society. So if you were seen as someone who couldn't fight, well, you were worthless. I'm sure they could donate, like help society in other ways. What about their doctors? Yeah, the, if you were a doctor at this time, then that meant that even though you more than likely served in the military. Really? Yeah, anyone of prestige and wealth. But the way that they had a system, it wasn't that just everyone volunteered and did it. It's that when a legion would be raised, that it would be made up of a, a kind of lottery system where from households based off your land in within families, they would have certain numbers of sons or male members that would be drafted. I wonder. So I wonder how military service impacted marriage. It's a great question. And it was probably significantly less impacted in the beginning of the empire when it was still just the city state of Rome versus what happened later. What happened later? Well, that's what we're going to get into and why they <laughs> had why they needed the Marian reforms in the first place. Because it's kind of a double-edged sword when we talk about this. The Marian reforms were necessary, but they also simultaneously led to the degradation and destruction of Rome itself. And what we'll, I, I thought they standardized the army. Wouldn't that make it better? Like they you constantly would, had a standing army. You would think. And that is precisely something that weakens its political system. I'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Okay, okay let's go. Let's go. Because now I need to know. Okay. So the, those landless people that we're talking about before, right? That is the capiti sensi, the landless poor. What it essentially means is that they are counted by head. So they don't what they would do before when they were running taxes in order to be able to to mark people down is that you were measured based off your land and your wealth. And that was your overall system. But when you own so little that you cannot count in the system. You're counted as a number. As a head, there are 20 people in this household or here like you, you don't have anything to you. You are literally just a head. That is the idea behind this. They could not serve unless there was an emergency situation and they were called up for battle. The land-owning populace had more to lose, right? This was the argument, which made them more willing to fight and more able to fight, and not only just for defending their own land, but simultaneously to enrich themselves further. The citizens who qualified for enrollment in the military, they saw that by participating in the defense of the state, that they were fulfilling their civil duty, it was their responsibility, and it was also a privilege for them. This was the early military of the Republic, where soldiers were loyal specifically to the Republic because they had everything staked on it. So these were the guys who would hold these prominent positions in society. And then once the fighting was over, 
They'd go back home, they would go to the farms, wherever they came from, and they would continue on with their lives. The campaign season, because yes, there'd be a season, similar to how you would have like sports seasons of like, oh yeah, you know, spring going into summer, that's soccer season, that's what they would do, and like late summer going into fall, that's what would happen. There's a war season. So they just... Did the other people that they were fighting know that when March came around, yes. they were about to be Because really? for them, it was the same thing. So, okay. So what were they doing in the other month? Harvesting or planting. They were managing their farms. That was the whole point. So you, everybody. You it around the harvest. Everybody was like, okay, guys, we're going to take a little time out so yep. we can go garden. Yep. So literally. You're I'm joking. not even kidding. No, that is <laughs> all over the world. That is exactly what would happen. You would go away typically for only a few weeks. Because mind you, this is all localized conflict. When it's a city-state and you're marching to attack the enemy, the enemy is not 150 miles away. They're four miles down the road because you're fighting the city-state that is next to you. That's what was happening. So you would typically go away and you're either away for a few days, a few weeks, these kinds of things, and then you would go back home, you would finish the harvest. And since the early days of this fighting, these soldiers, these were the land-owning citizens. They did not have to rely on any kind of general or leader to give them a piece of land upon requirement or upon their retirement because they had what they required already. They, they didn't require any retirement plans because their farms was their livelihood. This was all waiting for them when they went home, when they were dismissed from service. And this is where it leads into the manipular system itself. Because before we explain how it changed, it's important to explain the way that the system was set up because it was complicated, complex, confusing. Okay, guys, when I was writing this, I got to this section and I went, um, <laughs> I'm just going to put this in here and you're going to have to make sense of it because truly to this day, I have no clue what they were trying to say. They were like, there were this many men and this thing and that earth. Okay, he'll just explain it. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Yeah. It's right. dense. I will explain it. And one of the key reasons why I think I can do this and why it's like, oh yeah, no, this makes complete sense. Is it, yeah, I totally get it. It's because the sheer amount of games that I've played that are Roman themed, like in the case of Total War and you hear these Whoa. terms all the time, like Rome 2 Total War. Fun fact, when I was doing research for this and the Gladius video, mm-hmm. people kept... <laughs> All of the forums for Rome Total War kept popping up because it's a lot of history. Yes. So it was like literal arguments and so much information. And I actually found a lot of people were posting sources on the forum. So I would just go to the source and boom, there was all the information that I needed. Oh, yeah. No, people Love get that. very intense when it comes to this. I mean, hell, you've seen what has been happening with War Thunder as of late with all the military leaks. Yeah, those have probably got to stop. They're going to shut that game down. One military is going to be like, we've had enough. Like one day they're just going to be, War Thunder, you're over. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, everyone. It's Sakuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So here was the manipular system, right? The army consisted of four legions, and each legion had around 4,200 infantrymen, and in battle, there were three lines of infantry. The first line was the Histadi, then you had the Principes, and then finally the veteran Triarii. Now, to kind of explain this, and and the way that it all works is that the the names don't mean anything to you, right, Gabby? Like, they just just don't. Absolutely not even. Okay. Okay. So the way that Rome divided its military was based off age and wealth, right? So the younger, poorer men, those who were newer to their farms, maybe they came from lower class families, but they still had some degree of wealth. They could afford some equipment. They might not even have any armor or just a simple little like metal square that is on their chest, along with their shield and sword and that kind of thing. Those were the Hastati. They were the young, still technically quote, heavy infantry, I guess you could say, but they were pretty much a light infantry frontline force. That, that's what they were. 
these were the younger men that were thrown into battle first. After them were typically the a little bit older, more established, more wealthier men. They could afford better armor. They had more training, veterans, equipment, everything. This was the principes. And then behind them were typically the oldest, like most experienced, wealthiest men who could afford the best weapons and armor. And that was the triarii. Why would you put the most experienced all the way at the back? So one of the key reasons is because this, this is your reserve. When you have a battle and it starts to go poorly, you don't send in your weaker units because when you do so, they can't actually really hold. They're not going to be able to provide a decisive point. And, and, and what would happen is that the reason why it had three lines is that very rarely did it ever come down to actually utilizing the triarii like that. So the people with the best equipment rarely saw any battle. Kind of. Yeah, they would be utilized when they had to, but you didn't want to necessarily risk them because if you lose them, that is a huge loss, both in terms of society and simultaneously you are losing a key military component of your force. I don't understand. Okay, so I guess they only got to be, they had to fight their way up to that. Pretty much, yes. Okay. so They were the veterans. And if you imagine this, you put your veterans on the very front line. What happens in the very, very beginning? Skirmishers go out into the front line and they start hurling spears. Uh, they, they're arrows, slingshot, everything. Though That is peppering your front line. Do you want a veteran who has been around for 20 years in the best armor to get domed by a, <laughs> like a stone and is just dead? Couldn't do anything on the front line? Okay, fine. Yeah, you're right. It's one of the reasons why you want your units at the front to kind of be there to soften up the enemy, to test them. The ones that are, I don't want to use the word expendable, but that's kind of the closer thing to it. But even then, at the very front of the Hastati was another class called the Velites. The Velites were the skirmishers. They were men who ran forward with exactly that. Slings, with javelins, with these kinds of things, and they would be peppering the enemy in order to try and weaken their line. That's that that's how that would work. OK, but I, I'm, I've gone not exactly off track, but I've kind of explained for how those units are divided and what the names actually mean. So in each of these three lines, there would be five manipuli of 120 Hastati, 120 Principes and 60 Triarii. A maniple, which in this case, maniple means like from Manu means fist, because the idea that they had of it is that these were individual fist sized units of soldiers. Not one solid block line. These would be able to move forward and attack a position individually and were flexible enough to be able to move out of the way. A maniple was then further divided into two century of 60 each Hastati and Principes and 30 Triarii. Each century had six squads, a squad which was named the Contabarium, literally meaning tenting together because these guys would share a tent with each other wherever they actually went on campaigns. Like this was their squad that they had to be with. Gabby, you're looking at me all funny. And, and, and for some of that, probably, yes, I'm not going to say what it is for the the hand gesture that you just made. But perhaps in some cases it would be OK. Manipular legions would then be supported by 10 30 man squadrons of equites. These were light cavalry and were the most elite members of society. They were the really wealthy ones because they could afford horses. And horses are stupid expensive to actually maintain, especially in this day and age. So these were the wealthy. But that all being say it said, Rome was never, ever famous for its cavalry. Towards the end, they were. Well, not famous for them, but towards the end, they had well, a they lot had of cavalry. cavalry. But over the course of the majority of the like Roman state at all, the largest component of their cavalry were auxiliaries. Auxiliary meaning that it was a separate force from allied tribes, allied forces, mercenaries, these kinds of things that would serve as their cavalry because they really didn't have a tradition of cavalry until going in towards the later parts of the imperial where period. they just needed to cover more ground Correct. quicker because their enemies were literally everywhere. Yeah. Yes, yes. And they were also mostly cavalry, so they needed to be able to kind of counter it. So the manipular legion would then be initially deployed in four lines. The first of this was a solid line made up of skirmishing velites, and these are the ones who would go forward and they would hurl missiles at the approaching enemy in order to try and inflict casualties and disrupt their formation. Because if 
you have some guys that are in shield wall and all of a sudden their shields have a bunch of javelins sticking out of them. It's a lot harder to use your shield. This can really mess up a formation. The final three lines known as the triplex asses was made up of the infantry, a line each for the Hastati, the Principes and Triarii. And these three lines would then be segmented and deployed in a kind of checkerboard pattern known as a quincunx. And when the marching enemy would get close to the Velites, these guys would then retreat through the gaps in the manipoles to the rear of the formation, which made it very effective to be able to move. Because th think about this. When you're fighting the Greek style, right? With hoplites, that is one massive shield, overlapping shield, overlapping shield in a continuous line going back. The skirmishers that are in front, unless the hoplites can easily break formation and separate themselves, which actually weakens their formation, they can't really move. So their skirmishers would have to move around primarily around the flanks. But if the Velites suddenly come under attack by enemy cavalry or anything like that, they can quickly retreat back through their own line directly through the center or whatever part they are because of the gaps in the line. It was very flexible to move out of the way in one direction or the other. And so then the front line of Hastati men would probably have formed a more solid line to engage the enemy in close quarters combat. If the front line could not hold, if they could not take care of it, then this would fall back onto the Principes and it was going to be their job. And if they also failed, then it fell back onto the Triarii, as we talked about. This was such a rare thing and it was such an important thing that it gave a phrase in Rome called Res ad triarios venit, literally meaning it comes down to the triarii, which means carrying on to the bitter end. It was a phrase that literally meant like it, it has come down to this. It is our last stand. It is the final straw. There were only 60 triarii. So honestly, if it came down to it, what were they really going to do? I know. Per, what were they going to do? You know? Yeah, but it, no, but it was per unit. There was still like a good wait. Hold on. So if it was like 48, wait, 48. Quick math. Go. Wait, no, because I'm messing up here in terms of the numbers now. So I'm trying to remember. There was 4,200, right? So that means you're talking about the wait, 1,600, then 1,600, then 800, right? No, then 1,000. Then it would be 1,000, unless I'm messing that up here in my head now. Here, There were a good number of triarii still. There definitely would be, right? Okay. So th this is where that comes from. And then... Over this entire formation, right, typically each of Rome's two consuls, because the, these are the guys who are commanding their military, they would have two legions each at their disposal, and then a legion would be commanded by six tribunals. A pair of tribunals would be then be commanded or would command the legion for two months at a time, and they would switch off command with each other every day, rotating to the next pair at the end of two months. Centurions would then command each century of infantry. A manipole would have two centuries or centurions, giving the legion 10 centurions per line of infantry, or 30 centurions in total. Decurions, or decurions, I'm actually not sure how I would say that, they would command each cavalry termo, which was the squadron. This is the system. I hope that I kind of explained it in a little bit that people could understand. Once it comes down into numbers, you pretty much just have to know is that they would divide it into things based basically in units of 10, and that's how they would organize. This is the system as it stood for the early, the middle, and much of the late Republic before things would really begin to change. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Which brings us to the question then, what makes things change? Why did it change? I'm assuming since they raised their army 
and then dismiss their army and then raise their army mm -hmm. and then dismiss. The People would lose skill. It's not like they were constantly training. Yeah. You know, like a military should be training. It should be a unit. Mm -hmm. But it was more inconsistent. Yeah. Well, that's one reason. That's one reason. The bigger problem, though, is just distance. What do you mean distance? Well, think about it. Rome didn't stay as a city state. It grew. Oh, it grew. It conquered. So they weren't fighting four miles down the road. They were fighting months um, away. Yeah. Now you're getting it there. Right. And then who's taking care of the oh, who's taking care of the harvest? There you go. See, that's the thing. That's exactly it. I'm glad that you're coming to the conclusions here as we're moving on for it, because that's exactly what is what, what would happen. Right. So Rome started to experience a lot of different uh, recruitment issues as time was going on, especially after the Second Punic War, not the least of which was because the Second Punic War resulted in like. I think something along the lines of 30%, 40% of the young men, like young qualifying men in Rome, dead. One battle alone, I think the Battle of Cannae itself was responsible for 20% of essentially all of Rome's young male population. Gone. Were they married? Well, some would. Because that's would a lot of widows. Oh, yeah. And then if they weren't married, that's a lot of single women. Yeah. Yeah, a lot died. So lot. one battle could basically collapse a society. If it was bad enough. But the, the crazy thing about Rome was its system was so resilient to what it was able to do. Rome took insane losses that in any other kind of society would have resulted in pretty much its complete destruction. And Rome just kept on bouncing back again and again and again and again. And they just kept on doing it to the point that enemies that went up against them, like in the case of the Carthaginians, they thought that they'd be able to grind the Romans down. No. The Romans ground themselves down and in the process, process took their bloody stumps and shoved it into the face of whoever was attacking them to beat them back. That was a really gruesome picture, Steve. Yeah. Like, and that who? is pretty much what they did. Yeah. Either way, they were still going to have problems. <laughs> you, you don't mutilate yourself that badly here and not run into issues. So following the Second Punic War, they start running to some serious problems where they're taking all of these lands outside of Italy. Because it's no longer just in the Italian peninsula. They're in Sicily. They're in Spain. They're in North Africa. They're in places that are surrounding them, but yeah, really far. Exactly. And it's going to take weeks or months just to travel there in the first place, not even counting the campaigns that you would potentially have to go through. My question, sorry, I didn't mean go, to. No, interrupt. go for it. My question is why would they, because you know how. For the longest time, they were fighting offensively and then they took so much that they had to switch to fighting defensively. But then they had so much land and mm -hmm. they were fighting on all fronts because yes. they took land surrounding them. So they kind of box themselves in. Did they at any point, you think, think to themselves, hey, maybe we're overextending? Yes. Yeah. Many so why times. did they keep going? Often. OK. Remember Rome's political system, how we discussed about having two consuls? Yes. When a consul was elected, and this was like the highest government office that you could have in the Roman Republic. This was the head of the military, and there was two of them. When a consul was elected, you were consul for one year. One. That's it. So we talked about this when, uh, when we, I think, covered the Battle of Cannae before. Where they wanted uh, military prestige. Yes. So they can actually be an important consul. But here's the thing. We see that even with today where we have a four-year term for a president and some presidents get screwed over mm -hmm. during that term. You know, like we can't all be winners. Yeah. Yeah. But for them, if they didn't do something as a consul, that meant that their political career afterwards was basically dead. So they needed to do something. It was a high risk, high reward. And that's what they wanted. You would earn power. You would earn prestige. You would earn the respect of the public, you would earn wealth, you would earn everything. That is what you had to do. And so Rome was always seeking to expand and do something. Something, even if it was just defending an ally that potentially might need help. But even if people are hesitant about it, they're going to be doing something. And that's what they're going to do. So Rome is always trying, was always expanding. But when it got to be outside of Italy, it creates some serious problems where they require a kind of standing force in order to keep these new places that are conquered loyal to the Republic. The military that they had based on the militia farmers was simply not something that was designed to actually use as an 
overseas provision, not provisionary. What's the word? Not militia. Garrison force. That's what I'm thinking of. It wasn't something that they could use to just exert their power and influence overseas. The recruitment problem also stemmed from the fact that the public land that they had within Rome itself was being oftentimes sold to wealthy members within society and like the Senate between 180 and 170 BC and other periods. What would happen is that Senate members would use public land in order to create these huge farms that were worked by slaves in order to produce cash crops, things like olives and wine and these sort of things. These farms then became known as something called La Defundia, and the senators or the wealthy families or individuals who owned these, they didn't give a crap about feeding the city's populace or anything else. They wanted to use these farms to turn a profit which meant that over time within Rome, you started to see these huge wealth disparities and the, all these smaller farms that were around these territories ended up getting bought up because check it out. What is, I'm fumbling for words now. Do you remember in the beginning how I said that it was all these small farmers and then based off the size of your farm and your wealth, that is what determined your military service? So all of these guys are going off to war. They're leaving their farms unattended for longer and longer and longer. And what it means is that when they get back, a lot of their farms have either been sold off to these wealthy people that tried to buy them up while they were away because their families ran into some financial trouble because the farm wasn't being worked. They ended up coming back and trying to work their farm, but now their crops, when they're trying to produce them, they simply cannot compete with the prices of these big farmers because these senators have huge numbers of slaves that are working these fields and they can produce olive oil and grain and all these other things for a way cheaper price than what this small farmer is capable of doing. It's literally these senators, if you want to, I say literally, it's if you want to draw any kind of comparison, these senators created agricultural Walmarts that destroyed local farms. local farms, just like it would for local businesses. We love a good senator, don't yeah. we? Yep. And so that is what happened. The country was effectively shooting itself in the foot because as all these small farms get destroyed, the people on them that would have served in the military before because they had that wealth now no longer do. They stop being members of society that can be recruited into the military and merely become members of the headcount before. Which means that your potential pool for military recruits becomes smaller and smaller every year. It's literally shooting yourself in the foot. It is such a bad thing that would That's happen. That's awful. Like they're it, actually creating poorer citizens. Like correct. it's not a richer country. Now you're taking out all of the wealth and you're giving it to like five people. Correct. Correct. It's like the opposite of trickle down economics. Yep. And so in order to try and fix the recruitment issues, they did some band-aid measures. Like the first thing that they did was that they lowered the military requirements like or the land requirements so that you didn't have to own as much to go in. So this way it opened it up to more people. So the really small farmers could still serve in, which, okay, fine. That brought the army back up to strength, but it was only a quick fix and didn't actually permanently fix the problem they were having in the first place. And that would be made very apparent in the year 113 BC, because this is when a series of Germanic and Celtic tribes migrated into Roman lands. And in their first encounter with these tribes, Rome experienced a massive defeat that almost cost them one of their entire armies. So the next year, in 112 BC, there is a man by the name of Jugurtha who is fighting his two brothers for control of Numidia, which if you don't know where that is for anyone listening, this is in what is today modern day Tunis and Algeria in northern Africa and pressure from the Equites class from these wealthy like men within society, which mind you, the, the equities within Rome, they are the ones who oftentimes would serve as the lawyers, the private bankers, the doctors. So you're asking about what would they be doing? They weren't fighting with the infantry, even though that was the pride. These were the guys who are wealthy enough to afford a horse. Okay, good. Because so could you doing. imagine sending a doctor with years of training to die on the battlefield? Like I would, if I were the doctor, I'd be pissed. If I were the patient, I would also be pissed. Yeah, yeah, eh, but they would. And that would happen. 
It just depends upon your position and what, what you thought that you could do. So these events happen simultaneously and the equites pressure the Senate to go in and fight Jugurtha down here because they want to get involved in Numidia in order to exact more influence over trade in the region, right? So Rome is now at war on two sides. We know how pretty, that goes. Yeah. And it's pretty far away is a bit of the problem, right? Because you have one place, the Celtic and Germanic tribes, this is going up into northern Italy and right, like the northern regions. And then you have all the way across the Mediterranean Sea in the south in Numidia, right? It's not good. Rome has a very slow start in its war with Jugurtha at first. But by the end of 110 BC, you have a man by the name of Quintus Cassilius Metillus who takes over command of the war and he does bring Rome a couple victories. While he was capable, he wasn't able to actually finish off the war quickly. And his inability to end that war quickly allowed his legate, Gaius Marius, to gain the consulship in 107 BC. And as the new consul, Marius went and replaced Metellus as the commander in the war. And it is here that we would see the beginnings of the guy of who would launch the Marian reforms. Named after himself, Marius. We can't judge him for naming his reforms after himself because every single scientist who has ever discovered anything has named it after themselves. Probably not everyone, but man, some I of actually, these are ridiculous. I can't remember actually looking at this if the if they actually had the name the Marian reforms or if it was just reforms that were done by him that were adopted by other people. I think it's more of the second. I don't think that I think we call it the Marian reforms now because it was his reforms that ended up getting then copied and implemented by others such as Sulla, who would take over as dictator of Rome. Later. But look at him being a consul who got something named after him. Yeah. A real memorable guy. Yeah. Side note regarding Marius, it, it, it's kind of funny when it comes to politics because Gaius Marius came from this pretty wealthy family in uh, uh, Arponum, Arponum, and he was part of the equestrian class. It wasn't really uncommon for men of his class to join the lower ranks of the Senate and be sponsored by patrician houses in order to go up the political ladder. So Marius had joined the military and he was a very good soldier and he was able to advance up through the ranks in the military. And there he became noticed by the Metellus family and they actually sponsored him in his political career. The guy he replaced. Here's the issue. Marius was a bit of an ambitious man, which was a very common trait for Romans and especially Roman politicians. Oh, they were all about political and military advancement. And he wanted to gain the consulship. He wanted to do way more than what he had. So in 108 BC, an opportunity opened up for Marius to run for consulship. And so he goes and asks Metellus if it's like, okay, hey, can I leave and go back to Rome? And um, can, I, can I try to be consul here? Can I, can I go do, do that? And Metellus tries to talk him out of it because he doesn't want him to leave. They're still fighting the war. And Marius gets so pissed off by this. That he just goes, right? He, he just leaves and goes back home. And then due to this ambition that he had and his anger towards Metellus, Marius then goes and gets the support of the troops and the equestrian businessmen and tells them that, hey, if I get in charge, if you support me, I'm going to end this war in like a few days. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get all this. It's the politician going up and making wild promises that they don't really have any hope of delivering on, but he is going to make the grandiose statements that is going to get him noticed. Marius is also, in addition to this, able to get the support of the plebes, the, uh, the, the plebeian class, the lower classes, because at this time, they're experiencing more of a elevating period for new men. Like people are on the up and up from the lower classes to try and take positions within society. And with the support of both the equites and the plebes, Marius is able to gain the consulship in 107 BC, along with the full command of the war with Jugurtha. So that's, that's a little side note there of how he was able to do that. It's just funny that the literal family that sponsored his rise in the first place, the one that gave him the opportunity to do this, he ended up screwing over. Big time. Ah, Rome. Political betrayal. Classic. Just a classic thing that was done here. So anyway. Before he leaves from Rome and heads back to the Numidian front, Marius goes and recruits a bunch of volunteers from the poorest members of society in order to take with him. 
the recruiting from the uh, from the Capiti Sensi. This seems to have been something that was necessary due to all these recruitment problems that they were experiencing before. Marius also wanted soldiers probably that were going to be loyal to him when he took command of the army because, of course, before the previous guys where they were serving medalists like he was the one who was the previous commander and he didn't want to potentially have an army that was entirely composed of people that might not be loyal to him the funny part about this is that the senate did not give approval for this they did not he just went and did it but because of the tribunes and the support of the plebs and all, like he had such a wide popular base under him marius was basically untouchable at this point like, you couldn't do anything to him. And while he was not able to end the war as quickly as he promised and boasted that he would be able to, he did end up ending the war by negotiating with uh, Jugurtha's father-in-law, King Bacchus, to surrender his son-in-law. Like, the king caught him and just turned him in. So, <laughs> oh, that's messed up. Yeah, betrayal, uh, betrayal from your father-in-law. Not, not a funny thing. But it did work out for the Romans in this case. Yeah, it did. So, and so by 105 BC, Rome was facing an invasion by the Cimbri and the Teutons, these, uh, these tribes that we spoke about here from before. And Marius gets elected as consul for a second time in order to face this new threat, right? And from here, this is where the reforms that he would become known for, this is where they would really start to be put into play. Okay, so they were allowed to have multiple terms. I mean, they could, it wasn't normal. It was not normal. So, it, only in times of uh, national, I guess, security issue? Yes, because... It, or maybe you do such a good job that they're like, you can come back. We liked you. Kind of. So, it was pretty much something that would only occur within the case of a national emergency. It was not common, but it definitely is something that could happen. You did not want to typically concentrate years of power within one military person because potential to try and take everything over yeah that checks out yeah so rome though has suffered four major defeats at the hands of the germanic and celtic tribes and so marius was facing an issue of not having enough soldiers to recruit because the men just kept on dying for some reason you know it's weird it's weird like that it just seems to happen <laughs> so in order to fix the recruitment problem right marius goes and eliminates the land requirement he doesn't just lower it he completely eliminates it opening up the military for rome to any male citizen whatsoever this along with enhancing military training by basing it off techniques that would be developed by gladiators replacing the three different types of soldiers with instead cohorts of men that were universally armed with the exact same type of equipment the spanish short sword the gladius the scutum which is the shield and the pilum which is a type of throwing spear along with the use of the eagles as the imperial standard for all legions. Because before, they would have separate things for different legions, like you might have, you know, some bull here, an eagle here, a boar here. They're just different kinds of other symbols. No, the imperial eagle. Like, that, it wasn't at that point the imperial eagle, but it was the eagle of Rome. That's, that's what it was. For all legions, it was going to be standardized. The equipment also would in turn be supplied by the state, not by the individual man, and the soldiers would actually be paid for their service. Well, that's good. So no more people were able to own land because they'll have money. Oh, see, see, that that's one of the things going into it, and that's part of the reward, and this is where some of the problems would occur. But we were, I'm getting a little bit of my head of myself. I'm guessing it destabilized the people with all of the power because they had power because they had more wealth. Sort of. Yes, that is one of the lines, but it's also a little bit darker there. And you don't, you don't realize why it would be kind of messed up until you really see what happens. Okay, well, hurry up. Okay, so the military at this point is starting to be standardized and professionalized. Under Marius, the mobility of each soldier is going to get drastically improved because each legionary would now have to carry his own baggage, utilizing this kind of big forked stick. Like, I, I promise for anyone listening to this right now, Go look up this video because you think, oh, it's going to be a guy who's carrying it via straps, right? No. Each soldier would have this long Y-shaped, like a forked stick. And then on that stick would essentially hang all the different kinds of supplies and bags and everything. And they would just be carrying it like that. 
This would increase their mobility drastically by reducing the size of the Roman baggage train, along with giving the new soldiers the nickname Marius Mules, because they carried all their own equipment. So like a modern day U.S. soldier with yeah. their big backpacks. Exactly. Which, how strong do you have to be to lift one of those? Uh, if I remember correctly, the average kit weighs 80 pounds. Oh, so I couldn't be in the U.S. military, even if I wanted to. Yeah, like it's split over, you know, your full body. But I'm pretty sure the average kit was 80 pounds or so. It, it The equivalent of what a knight in full armor weighs is what a modern soldier would weigh. And they walk in that. And run. <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Well, you know, good, good for them. Yeah. Good job. I might be wrong on the number, but I think that that was the case. Um, so they get this name, Marius Mules, and they were able to move more quickly and be more responsive from this to any kind of threats that could come into the country. And under this system, a Roman legion could be expected to march 20 miles in a day with a full load of gear. 20 miles? Which is a lot. That is very quick, especially for a lot of people. Okay, so let's say it takes them, um, they're walking, you know, they're chilling, 12 mm -hmm. minutes to do their mile. Oh, no, it would definitely take longer than that. 15 minutes to do their mile. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they're doing 20. Do mm -hmm. the math. I can't do the math. Okay, well, if you're expected to move six to eight hours a day, and considering that if you're moving, let's say 20 minutes to a mile, right? Then that okay. means that you're talking about three miles in an hour. So if you marched for six hours, that's 18 miles. So if they marched for, you know, but seven non -stop. hours. stop. Who can march nonstop? At some point, you'll have to pee. Yeah. And someone who would, it would stop there. So assuming from that, that it's eight hours worth of travel over the course of the day with the breaks, if it was continuous, that would be 24. So by... Could you imagine having a stomach bug on your little 20 mile march? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't be a pleasant I'm thing. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of everything that could go wrong. Yeah, that would not be a pleasant thing. The crazy thing about this is that not only does it drastically increase their speed because they don't have to wait on a huge legion of people carrying supplies and baggage and everything else behind them, but simultaneously, because they're always carrying their own gear, they get strong. Like, it is constant training every day, moving many dozens of pounds of equipment to supply. You're carrying your food, you're carrying your water, you're carrying literally everything with you. And then simultaneously, you're marching for long periods of time. You get fit, like very physically fit. So you're telling me all of Marius's mules were hot. I'm not going to use the word <laughs> hot, but they were definitely built mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. considering what they, uh, what they were capable of. Okay, so now we have to train like Roman soldiers. You know how we're going to start like hitting the gym? Uh-huh. So we're going to do 20 miles per day. We're going to uh -huh. carry all our food and water for the day. Just all out gear around. Gabby, you make me carry your water bottle for you. I don't like having to hold things. <laughs> you really, really said that. So you can just carry my stuff for me. You'll get stronger. Uh -huh. Wins all around. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Nobody loses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, back sure. to the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, Gabby. Back to the story, huh? So, again, they get strong and they're going to be marching for quite a bit of time. The reforms that Gaius Marius is pushing through... This abolishes the maniple system that they had before, and they instead replace it with the single cohesive unit that is the cohort. There's no hastati, there's no principes, there's no triarii anymore, there's none of that old division. It's just the cohort. The cohort would consist of three maniples, one from each of the lines of the older manipular legions, and in this major reform to the Roman army, ten men would form a contubernium. Ten contubernia would constitute a century, and six centuries would make a cohort. So the contubernium were the people who shared a tent. You're yes. telling me ten men slept in one tent? Yes. I mean, it'd be a big tent, but it still was, yes. You'd have, like, the, the bedrolls that would be laid out it's side too many by side. men to one tent. Yes. What if one snores, you know? What if they all snore? And then you're the one guy who doesn't snore. Uh, you might get beaten. Oh, that's awful. Okay, continue. Yeah, yeah it could happen here. So the cohort would offer a, a, a whole bunch of advantages from this, right? This was a much smaller unit that would work together and the men were no longer divided by experience and wealth. That wasn't a thing anymore like it was with the Hastati. Because remember how it was the young men, the middle men, and then the older wealthy men and how it was all divided there? Instead, they would all be together. Multiple cohorts, because they were smaller units, could be combined together and serve as a sufficient detachment force 
if it was required for an operation. Because before, they only pretty much had the Legion. So if you were going to be facing an enemy that you didn't need a full Legion for, why would you mobilize that many men to go after them? It just wasn't really necessary. So you could send smaller detachments of cohorts to cover more territory. And this was easier for a commander because now he would only command 10 cohorts as opposed to 30 maniples. He could instead send messages through the 10 cohort commanders instead of 30 different subordinates. Generally, the larger 10 cohort legion was used for large scale warfare, and the Romans could also deploy smaller forces of a legion to deal with smaller battles. It was just a much more flexible system that you didn't have to rely on so many more moving parts in order to manage. Furthermore, when you have cohorts like this, these could be moved as individual units that would move individually with a battle line. This made them significantly more flexible strategically because you could send one cohort to one side, one cohort to the other, and it wasn't just large blocks of men in a singular line. You could manipulate them and move them in different parts of the battlefield that would be required for you. It was way more tactically viable. And when you combine that with the strong martial tradition of Rome, these reforms would turn the Roman military into what was nearly an unstoppable juggernaut over the course of the next few centuries. And it would change a lot of things, many for good, but also a bunch of the stuff for worse. See, these reforms allowed the poor to join the army for the first time, which provided them with huge amounts of opportunities that would allow them to rise in power. Marius, by allowing so many Italians to become citizens, ended up changing Rome's nature, and it became less of a city-state that controlled all this territory and allies to the capital of Italy. Like, it created the framework that would be needed for an empire. The ability of many Italians to become citizens would just strengthen Rome over time as it would incorporate massive numbers of them into the Roman system. Politically, economically, and pretty much everything else, the, the military built them into Romans. And then, by Mary's providing retired soldiers with land from conquered territories, this would strengthen Rome control of the provinces because it would move these former soldiers that were loyal to Rome, quote, I'm going to use quotes when saying that because it's going to vary quite drastically here. But by moving these retired soldiers who had fought in the Roman way with the Roman language, with Roman everything, into these places, what it effectively was doing was colonizing them with Roman citizens who would establish Roman control over the territory. Like that thing that the Protestants did in Ireland? Exactly. Northern Ireland? Yes. Remember when I said that that is a tactic that has been used by people for quite literally thousands of years? Yeah. Yeah. You literally, this is another example so of it. So basically, if you want to control territory, you move your people into that territory and then you water down the population. Now they're having babies with the locals. Now who's who? Yes. We don't know. <laughs> People use that in terms of things for like politics all the time. And you, you'll see a lot of that with some of the people who have more um, ag ag aggressive, nasty oh identity politics kind of thing. I just realized some of my comments, you know, those really mean ones where they're really mad that you're married to me because I'm mm -hmm. not white. Yeah. Now I understand what they're trying to say. Yeah. And I was like, what are you talking about? Congratulations, Gabby. You've experienced an ancient military <laughs> tactic done to yourself. Oh, no, I'm doing or that done to, to you. Me. Yeah. I don't know. It depends on the person that's addressing us or attacking they, us, really. It's both. It just it depends. <laughs> it depends on who's leaving the hate comment. <laughs> so these re retired soldiers would oftentimes form the backbone of Roman society in newly conquered territories, which would help them maintain control over these lands and these colonies would Romanize the population over time, adapting them to Roman political and social and cultural norms. Like that was what they would do. And so Marius, in doing this, definitely strengthened Rome as a fighting force. Absolutely. He built the army into a very powerful, effective thing. He ensured that for centuries, the Roman army was not going to have essentially any kind of workforce shortage. They were set. His reforms would also ensure that the Roman soldier was the most professional and well-trained in the classical world and would not have an equal. The Roman army became a standing army, which meant that Rome could quickly respond to any threat, and the Romans always had an army that was well-trained, experienced, and would be a critical factor in expanding and controlling the empire. But, 
There's always a but. There's always a but. A big booty that makes us sit down and have to contemplate things. Okay, let's contemplate. What are we? Wait. I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going somewhere with that. Oh, I am. I am, but I had to say it like that first. You're going to get your mic muted. That's uh, where you're going. No, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not. The issue, the big butt, the big butt, and I cannot lie, is that. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> That this allowed many generals to take control of legions and to use them for their own purposes. Again and again over the last century of the Roman Republic, from the time that this happened all the way until it was dismantled, generals such as Pompey and Caesar and others, they basically had de facto control over the army, which was very destabilizing. This is obvious from the fact that there were a bunch of civil wars that occurred directly as a result of this just between generals no sooner had the reforms been implemented that war just seemed to be constant the roman generals became the most important part of roman politics and effectively as consuls they kind of already were but now they dominated it rather than being just important because what would happen is that commanders such as Sulla, they were able to now impose their will on the Roman political system. Increasingly, power would shift from the Roman senatorial class to the commanders in the field because they were the ones who had the loyalty of these men. The Roman Republic was in a crisis as a result of this for decades as Roman generals would use their forces in order to further their own political ambitions. Hell, this happened that with Julius explains, Caesar. Yeah, when they all were fighting and then they kept running away to Egypt and it was a whole mess. And yep. I was always wondering what was going yep. on. The like, soldiers who was in charge? were not loyal to Rome. They were loyal to their commander. Honestly? Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because their commander was the one that was raising them, training them, paying them, get, getting everything set. They were not just dismissed and going back to their farms or anything like that. Right? So how did they keep the commanders loyal to Rome? In many cases, they couldn't. And they, the way that they oftentimes tried to is that the political system was that they were supposed to cycle them out, right? So you couldn't be a military commander for a long time. Like that was the whole thing with consul only being in command for a year. Yeah, but how are you going to change your commanders every so often? Your army is going to be kind of trash. Uh, well, that's the system that they had. They already had a, such a strong martial tradition and people were expected to be able to pretty much know how to fight. So even when that would happen, you were still expected to do it. So then why were those three guys fighting for the longest time in Rome? That's a whole other, you, you're talking about an entire other podcast episode, Gabby. If you want to talk about like the civil war, because we have two rounds Just of those massive three civil dudes. wars. No, there was two. That was the first triumvirate. And then there was the second triumvirate. Right. Okay. <laughs> there <laughs> were so many dudes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Too many, some would say. Listen, we'll do a podcast episode on the first triumvirate and we'll do another one on the second triumvirate because their stories are, it's a big thing of politics backstabbing war okay now i'm all just different kinds of so stuff. excited to do those episodes but we have other episodes scheduled so yeah ah. <laughs> i know i know we'll, we'll get into it we'll get into it but really because this happened this gave the commanders all this power which would lead to a bunch of bloody civil wars that would only end with the creation of the imperial system under caesar and his grandnephew augustus Thus it was that the Marian reforms were, in the end, the thing that saved Rome and allowed it to become the great state that it did, but it is also the thing that doomed it. It doomed the Republic to an inevitable demise to either fall apart or be reformed into an imperial system. And that's really it. That's the Marian reforms. Good for Marius. I'm so proud of him. What a dude. Round of applause dude. for Marius, folks. What Yay. a dude. Anyway, that is the end of today's episode. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Make sure to leave us a review here for the podcast if you can. And uh, if you want ad-free episodes, remember always check us out on uh, Patreon. Check out the YouTube channel where we go in-depth about specific little topics in things. Like we have a whole video that's going to be releasing tomorrow, actually, which actually, no. This releases on Friday, which means this would have already released on Wednesday for the YouTube episode on why the Roman Empire stopped using the Gladius. We talked about that before and the legionary system in this about them using the Gladius. So we're going to talk about why they stopped. But before we end things, I forgot we have to do a little family history because we haven't done one here in a while. 
So this one says my family story about my mom. Uh, and I see right here from the beginning that it says, please don't say my email name because that's that's a thing that I end up usually reading aloud immediately because I don't I don't read these things through first. I just read them. So I, I I'll go ahead and say hello, Sakuya and Gabby. I'm Ellie. That's it. I have been listening to your guys podcast since the Egyptian inbreeding thing, which sounds like we did a whole Egyptian inbreeding thing instead of just an episode. <laughs> that's a very interesting way of phrasing that in the first place. Uh, now, my story isn't really inbreeding. Oh, good to know. Very good to know from the beginning. Thank, thank God we have that clarification from the start. But more of a story about love and the faith that brought my mom into this world. And not inbreeding, I, I, I hope. See, my grandparents were both born during the Great Depression and both born in South Dakota. My grandma lived with five other siblings in the town Led, or Lead, which is next to the infamous Deadwood. My grandpa was an only born child in a small farming community only like six miles from North Dakota. Now, my grandma is Catholic. My grandma could speak Latin and recite most to all of the prayers. She even went to Catholic school until high school, and once she reached high school, she joined the school newspaper and even got an older boyfriend. They, the boyfriend and grandma, were steady until it was announced that America joined World War II. And needless to say, the boyfriend left for the war, and Grandma said she didn't hear from him, and then when it was time for her to graduate high school, she had pretty much accepted that he was dead. So, he, she moved on and went to the local teaching school. My grandpa, on the other hand, was your typical lone ranger type of cowboy. Basically, he grew up on a ranch, he raised cows, he would shoot wildlife to eat, and he would ride his favorite to and from school, sometimes in the cruel South Dakotan blizzards. Yeah, those things are absolutely nasty and listen to the Packers play on the radio. When he was a teen, he played three sports, football, basketball, and baseball. And when it was time to decide on what college he wanted to go to, he decided to stay in South Dakota and to go to the local teaching college in the hills. And at the local teaching school, that is where they met. They met planning out floats at the pep rally committee, which can I just say from the beginning here, planning out floats at the pep rally committee this straight up sounds like something out of the 40s or the 50s, like with the classic, like I see them meeting in a diner and drinking milkshakes together. Like, you, you know, the exact image it's the that I'm talking about born in the wrong here. generation, um, romanticized era. Yeah, know? exactly. That's what it sounds like. This sounds like a drama straight out of one of those. I say drama, more like a, a light rom-com kind of thing. It took a bit of convincing for grandma, but soon enough, they were a major item. And according to my grandma, their dates were only at pep meetings. But according to my grandma's college roommate, the two snuck out a lot and my grandma's roommate had to cover for them to the point that the roommate had to lie to grandma's mom once. Ooh. Is all my Ooh. college roommates Ooh. covering for me when I'd go visit you? <laughs> yeah, but the school that you attended to here was like, we they were not supposed to visit of... boys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Towards the end of the Korean War, grandpa ended up getting drafted, but never was sent to Korea. So he and grandma decided at the ripe age of 20, they decided to get married. And before you ask, according to my grandma, she was scared for grandpa to go to Korea. And a lot of that fear stems from that ex that she had that probably died in World War II. So, I so guess she just, just really never heard from this man ever again. She never found out. She prayed a lot That's for grandpa so not to be sent. And thankfully, he didn't. And after the Korean War, grandpa finally got his degree in business and grandma had a degree in teaching. They moved to Cheyenne and had a son, but grandma, who had five siblings, wanted more. She wanted a daughter. So she prayed a lot to the Virgin Mary to give her a daughter, and it took them years for them to have another baby. And then, boom, my mom was born, and my grandma said, because I prayed to St. Mary, I am forever in gratitude to her. Thus, I name your mother after her. And about her ex-boyfriend, apparently he did come back. Okay, so he didn't die, but it was a little too late, and he moved on to a high school friend of my grandma's. So he came back years later and discovered, ah, yeah, that She's happened married. a lot. She's married, oh no. I hope you like my weird ramblings of grandparents' love story and hope you have a good day. I Ellie. like that story. It's that's, so that's wholesome. A, that's a nice, wholesome one. I mean, I guess even for the ex-boyfriend. Yeah, everybody got like closure. They all got their happy yeah. ending. I like that in the end, it's, oh yeah, he didn't die. Thanks for clarifying. I was, gonna, I was worried. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast, Ellie, and thank you to all of you who listen. And please remember to send in your family histories and stories or any of these other interesting things to our email, which is listed in the contacts here on the website. Anyway, I'll see you all 
Have a good rest of your day. Goodbye, my hoes. Bye.